Let's open up our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 5. And friends, we have gotten to the good stuff. I am so excited to preach the gospel this morning. It feels like it's been five months since I have preached in this church. It has actually been two Sundays. But uh, I am... I am uh, chomping at the bit to share this good news with you. And so let's read together. We're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 5, and then we're going to only talk about one of them. It's going to take us a while to get through these 11 verses, just a, just a heads up. Hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since there we, therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, this precious gift, this treasure that you have given to us, that by your spirit working through your word that we can hear the voice of our God, that we can come to know you, that, that we're supernaturally transformed into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even that which is dead is called to life. Blinded eyes are given sight, and deaf ears made to hear. Lord, this is your work. It's nothing we could manufacture. So we pray, Lord, that your spirit through your word would accomplish all of your good purposes in this place today. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, despite the beauty of this morning that we see outside, we are living in times of massive turmoil and uncertainty, are we not? There's natural turmoil. The West is on fire right now. Numerous lives have been lost. Many, many more are missing still and presumed dead. This COVID-19 virus has continued to spread. Many people are living in great fear from that. Many have lost loved ones. We ourselves know the pain of that far too well. For most Americans, though, the virus doesn't actually pose a very significant threat at all. Certainly it does for some, and we don't want to minimize that. But it definitely doesn't pose as much of a threat as we have been led to believe that it would or that it does. 
there are far greater threats facing us because that's not the only turmoil that's going on. There's economic turmoil going on in our world as well and in our nation as well. We're on like what, day 219 of 15 days to slow the spread? Something like that. Businesses have been closed permanently for many. Over 100,000 small businesses are gone, never to return again. Many that have reopened are at such partial capacity they will never be able to survive, and we wonder how our economy will ever survive this. There's also political turmoil, as there is every four years as we make our way towards the November that is election season. There is much turmoil, much unrest, but add to that the Black Lives Matter movement that has exploded uh, onto the scene. It's been around for years, but never bigger than it is right now. The riots that have accompanied it, the violence that has accompanied it. What's even worse is that much of the violence Much of the rioting, much of the unrest has been aided and encouraged, or at the very least, not restrained by the very leaders of our own government who are supposed to be, it's their entire job, protecting the nation from such things. Our nation is divided right now at a level that I don't believe we've seen since the Civil War. It's a little scarier than the lead-up to the Civil War because there's not a clear divide anymore. It's just all throughout the whole nation. The solutions that are being offered to all of these things are more harmful than helpful. They are making things worse. If we follow what we are told to do, it will make things worse in every single one of these cases. So in a time like this, what do we do? Do we just lose hope? Do we just lock ourselves in our houses and curl up in a fetal position and not move again except to get food and drink? No, our only refuge, our only hope is found in an apprehension of who God is. It's that we would lift our eyes off of the things that are going on around us in this world, look to God, see him for who he is, see his glorious gospel for what it is, And find all of our hope there, all of our assurance there. Otherwise, we will have no hope. There is no hope being offered by this world right now. We would have no foundation on which to stand, if not for that. We only will have hope as we understand who God is, what God has done, and what God has promised he will yet do. And so we need to pay close attention to Paul's words here because hope is found here. The first four chapters of Romans, Paul has given an exploration of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. How is it that a sinner, guilty, condemned, judged, a rebel, can avoid the condemnation that is due him? How, how, How can this one who is under the just wrath of God be found in right standing with that same holy God? How can his sins be forgiven? How can he be declared righteous before a holy God? Paul's given us four chapters walking through that, showing us just how that is. And now as we come to Romans chapter five through eight, 
Paul's going to provide for us the results of that justification. If God has justified you, if he has given the very righteous status of Christ to you, what does that mean for you? And specifically, zeroing in on the complete and total assurance of salvation that the believer can have. That those whom God has justified, he will surely glorify, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. And so, so here in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul begins showing us the benefits of justification. That, that the God-given gift of justification imputes to every believer the righteousness of Christ. We've been given God's own righteous status, Christ's own eternal perfection, and then God rewards us according to that. So, so here we are rebels, here we are steeped in sin, here we are unable to please God, and God as a gift gives us eternal perfection of Christ and then goes, and that's the basis on which I'll reward you. That's the best deal you're ever gonna get in your life. But this total transformation, what Paul's gonna show us is this total transformation of the person has sure results. If God has done this for you, there are things you can be sure come along with it. And that's where our hope is found. Our hope is not found, friends, in who wins in November. As much as we understand this is a very important election, that's not where our hope is found. No, it's found right here. It's found in who God is, what he has done, what he has said he will do. So look now at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have. This is a present tense verb. We have. In other words, whatever Paul's about to say now, if you have been justified by faith, is your possession already. You have it. So what is it that's been given to us? What are the blessings and benefits of this justification? I pray as we look at this over the next several weeks while the world is filled with anxiety and fear and anger and worry, that God will fill us with hope and peace and joy. That that will produce in us a greater hunger for, a greater delight in God and his word, a renewed desire to grow in godliness and obedience, a deeper love for and commitment to the church, the body of Christ, his bride purchased with his very own blood. Oh, oh, that, that, that this text as we study it over the next few weeks would produce that in us. That's my prayer. Let's look now at verse one. That's what we're focusing on this morning. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first benefit Paul's gonna show us and what we're focusing on this morning. We have peace with God. Because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is an objective peace. We have it. It's ours. It's not we, we hope to have peace with God. We might have peace with God if we play our cards right. Because you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God. It's bought by Christ's perfect work. It's based on Christ's perfect righteousness. It is objective. It is not subjective. It is yours. Peace with God. This is the most important news, Christian, you could ever hear. It's the most important offer 
you could ever receive, non-believer. Paul has just spent most of the first three chapters of Romans explaining in shocking detail the state of man's depravity. Just how wicked mankind, all of mankind is in ways that are not politically correct whatsoever. That those who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are not serving him, are not neutral towards God. And here's what's worse. God's not neutral towards them either. Here in chapter five, chapter five, as we read all the way through the first 11 verses, we got to verse, 11, verse 10, Paul said they are enemies of God. You see, it's not just that they hate God, God sees them as an enemy. What could be more frightening than that? They are at war with him, he is at war with them, they stand justly condemned under the wrath of a holy, almighty God. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It is not that people are neutral. They're not neutral towards God. He's not neutral towards them. It's not that they, they're neutral. Everybody starts out basically good, and then you slip up, and the wrath of God ends up on you. No, no, no. Jesus says the wrath of God is already on you. The question is not, how do I avoid the wrath of God coming on me? The, wrath of God, uh, the question is, how do I get the wrath of God that is already resting on me off of me? There's no neutrality here. God's wrath already rests on the sinner. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, that the sinner, the unbeliever, is not a child of God. He is a child of Satan. Now, many reject this truth. Many are offended by this truth. Maybe even your inner lawyer has started up already trying to reject this. Many passionately argue, no, 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 no. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. You know, like the Bible says. Well, I got news for you. The Bible doesn't say that. Gandhi said that. The Bible doesn't say God hates the sin but loves the sinner. That cliche is very popular, but it is very misleading. Okay, yes, God loves all people, everyone. God loves the sinner, but he loves them in a certain sense. And we must never forget this. He loves the sinner in the sense that he created them. He gave them life. He sustains their life. Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus says, He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God loves the sinner in that way. He's given them life. He sustains their life. They are doing better than they deserve. He loves the sinner in the sense that he's made salvation available to all who would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Acts 22, verse 21 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, such love he has shown to sinners. But that's not all that the Bible says about the matter. Psalm chapter 5, verse 5, David says to God, you hate all evildoers. D.A. Carson says 14 times in the first 50 Psalms alone, we are told that God hates the sinner. His wrath is on the liar and so forth. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests both on the sin and on the sinner. 
So as Psalm chapter seven, verse 11 tells us, God is the righteous judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. He's at war with those who rebel against him all the time, every day. And here's what you can be sure of. He will win that war. This is not a question. It's not a power struggle. His righteous judgments will stand, and yet there are many who claim God is simply too loving to ever send anyone to hell. Those who say this are ignorant of Scripture. They have no understanding of the holiness of God, no understanding whatsoever of what it means for God to be holy. Given the fact that on the cross, the Lord Jesus bore the full wrath of God for the sins of all who would ever believe in him, past, present, future, perfectly satisfying the justice that we deserve. Given that the Father would pour his wrath out on the Son to such an extent that the Son in agony cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you really think, how could anyone ever think that God's righteous wrath will not fall on rebellious sinners who shake their fist in the face of that Savior. If God were to just give a free pass to those who reject Christ, there would have been no need for Christ to come and suffer and die. There would have been no need for him to fulfill the law of God perfectly. There would have been no need for him to be the substitute sacrifice on the cross to go through that torturous pain, but more than that, the wrath of God poured out on him. It would be wicked. It would be evil of God to do that. God, if he just simply passed over sins, would cease to be just. He would cease to be righteous. It would be a violation of his own holiness. In the same way that if someone murdered one of our family members and, we, and they were dead to rights and stood in the courtroom and the judge at the very end said, I've decided I'll just let you go. That would be an unjust judge, a wicked judge, an unrighteous judge, an unworthy judge. And so all of mankind, as Paul says in Romans chapter one, are children of wrath, everyone. As we've seen many times as we've gone through Romans, this is a horrifying notion. The state of mankind is a horrifying notion. There is no peace with God. There is only hostility. And as Ephesians 5 verse 5 says, the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. This you can be sure of. Okay, there's a but here. <laughs> and this is such good news. The good news of the gospel is that when we are justified, that war is over. That hostility is gone. It is, as the Lord Jesus Christ said on the cross, finished. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says here in verse 1. This, friends, is where our assurance is found. It's not found in ourselves. It's not found in looking at ourselves and our own intellect and our own goodness and the works of our hands and saying, I hope this is good enough to get me over the hump with God. No, it is found right here in the very nature of the atoning work of Christ. The Lord Jesus perfectly, eternally satisfied the wrath of God for all of our sins, past, present, future. 
such that because of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 says, God remembers our sins no more. What assurance is found in knowing that should the Lord give me a long life, the sins I commit as an 80-year-old, he already remembers no more because of Christ. Oh, man. There's hope there. There's life there. There's peace there. We have been declared righteous, credited Christ's own righteous status, and now God deals with us according to that perfection. We are at peace with God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 says Christ himself is our peace. We're united to Christ. We're hidden in him. And so when the righteous judge of the universe looks at you, and friends, if you're, if you're questioning this, if you've been in perpetual doubt about your salvation, fearing that you might slip up and it might be taken from you or lose it like losing loose change out of a hole in your pocket, you need to consider what union with Christ means. To be united in him, to be hidden in him, such that when the holy judge of the universe looks at us, he does not see our rebellion and sin. He does not see the sins of our past. He does not, as he looks at us right now, see the sins of our present. He does not see the sins of our future. No, instead, when God the Father Almighty looks at us, he sees only our union with Christ. He sees Christ's eternal, spotless, infinite Perfection, past, present, future, that's all he sees when he looks at the justified believer. It's our union with Christ. It's, it's our identification with him that secures our redemption. This redemption that he has accomplished on our behalf. Galatians 2 says we've been crucified with Christ. We have died with him. We've been buried with him. Colossians 3 says we've been raised together with him, seated with him in heavenly places. We're now, Colossians 3 verse 3 says, hidden with Christ in God. So friend, your salvation is only secure as Christ's standing with the Father. It's our union with Christ that secures our standing with God. It's our union with Christ that grants to us all the spiritual blessings that we have in him so, so that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is the Bible's favorite designation of, of, of us, by the way. It's not Christian. It is in Christ. We would do well to start thinking of ourselves that way more often. I am in Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In Christ, we are free from the curse of the law. We have the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, we have wisdom and sanctification and redemption. Colossians 2 says that we are complete in him. Now, of course, we continue to sin. We all know that far too well. If you're sitting here thinking that somehow you have reached a place of sinless perfection in your Christian walk, just ask some of your friends who know you. If you are married, ask your spouse. They are ready with a list for you to let you know that that is not the case. No, we all continue to sin. The good news, brothers and sisters, is that will only last until our death. 
But listen, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer bound to sin. And even when we do sin, our sins, all of them, have been paid in full. As chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Just think of the implications of that for the believer. What if we really believed that that was true? It should give us overwhelming assurance. It should give us overwhelming confidence. What has the world got to throw at me? Nothing that can touch that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Well, friends, we can have absolute assurance of our right standing with God. We who were alienated once, we who were hostile once, we who were doing evil deeds because we were evil people, Christ has reconciled in the body of his flesh for a purpose, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Do you think he failed at that? Do you think he's not strong enough to accomplish what he set out to accomplish? Full assurance is there for us. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were at war with God, but now that enmity is gone forever, we have been given Jesus' own perfect peace with his Father. This objective peace. And if we are going to have subjective peace in this world, the kind of peace in, in the world and what it has to throw at us, if we're going to have peace in the midst of this turbulent world, we need to have an understanding of this objective peace that can never be taken from us by anything the world could bring to us. If we don't understand this peace, there will be no grounds for having peace in the world around us. If we don't have this peace with God, then everything that's happening in the world is so utterly terrifying, we should do everything we can do to preserve our lives at all costs because that's as good as it's ever going to get. That's why in Ephesians 6, when Paul speaks of the armor of God, that passage that we know well, he likens the shoes of the Roman soldiers whose, whose boots were cleated with metal spikes in order to give them sure and solid footing. He likens that to the believer's readiness, which is, he says, given to him by the gospel of peace. This is our sure footing. This is our sure ground. It's the knowledge of our peace with God because of our union with Christ that produces true and lasting hope in this life. The battle is over. God is our Father. He is on our side. Just think of what that means. God the Father Almighty is your Father and he is on your side. So if God's for us, who could possibly be against us? Who, who could possibly stand against us? What more assurance could we possibly need than that? 
We can know that we are truly saved and right standing with God. We can know that our eternity is secure fully in Christ. We can know that the penalty of our sins past, our sins present, our sins future has been fully paid in the propitiatory death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can know this. There are some who say it's presumptuous to have that kind of assurance. To know that you have been saved and that there's zero chance of Christ losing you is presumptuous. If we believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works on our part, it's just going to be license to sin. You're just going to go out there and do whatever you want. Where's the motivation to obey if this is true? Friends, I'll tell you, it is license to sin for some people. And I'll tell you the category of people it's licensed to sin for. Those who have a false profession of faith. Those who are false converts. Those who never had peace with God to begin with, but they've deceived themselves into thinking that they do. In reality, though, they are still at war with God. They are his enemies. That is why their rebellious hearts crave sin. Do you know what is not a Christian question to ask? Well, where's the motivation to obey God? It's not how Christians talk because it's not how Christians think because God has transformed us. These are people who will sin flagrantly, who pick and choose what they'll believe from God's word and reject whatever doesn't conform to their own wicked desires of their own wicked hearts. These are people who sin and then casually shrug their shoulders even as they call themselves Christians even as they attend church every Sunday morning. And they say, it's not a big deal. God will forgive me. It's his job to forgive me. They don't grieve over their sin. They never repent over their sin. They simply do whatever they want to do and presume that things will certainly be okay with God because they're basically good people. But friends, these aren't the words, these aren't the thoughts, these aren't the actions of the one who has been born again. This is how the hypocrite thinks. This is how the false convert thinks. The one who knows nothing of the meaning of justification by faith. Any, any man or woman who is truly at peace with God, any man or woman who has been justified fully, given the very righteousness of Christ, knows the depths from which they have been saved. They know that were it not for the mercy of God, they would remain hopeless, helpless, locked in a prison cell at the bottom of the abyss of moral filth and rebellion, and the wrath of God, and they would have no hope of ever escaping. They know, but for the wrath of God, they would be condemned to eternal torment rightly because of their sin, and so they are broken over their sin and rebellion. They don't shrug it off. But because they are broken by their sin and rebellion, they live in perpetual awe and wonder of God's mercy and God's grace and God's power to save. It doesn't mean that they have goosebumps 100% of the time, 24 hours a day. It just means they never get tired of hearing the gospel. 
They never grow tired of being reminded that they once were at war with God, but now, through the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Never ceases to amaze them. They stand in awe and wonder not only that God would forgive them, but that he would go so infinitely far beyond that. That he would go so very far beyond that, giving Christ's very own righteous status and then rewarding us according to that perfection which we did not earn, which was not ours, but was given to us. How amazing is this salvation? How amazing is this grace? These are people who, who understand the words that we sang this morning. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain, for me to, to him who to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Oh, my friend, if, 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 don't be deceived. If you have never felt the weight of your sin, if you find it easy to knowingly, habitually rebel against God because you presumptuously assume that he'll have to forgive you. If you don't repent of your sin, you just excuse it. You've got a list of reasons why it is okay for you. And you just presume God will never hold you accountable for that. Then regardless of what you think about yourself, regardless of your church attendance and for how many decades it's been going on, regardless of how everyone else sees you and how they think of you, you have no true peace with God. You're at war with him, and worse yet, he's at war with you. Paul, Paul here calls Jesus, in chapter 5, verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this is very serious. When, when we read in the New Testament and we get all three names, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a big deal. And you also can't separate them. I remember hearing one preacher I like, Stephen Lawson, saying, if I knocked on your door and you said, who is it? And you said, it's, it's me, Jason Michael Gingrich. And they said, all right, Gingrich can come in, but I don't want Jason and Michael. <laughs> no, this is a package deal. You get the whole thing. The Lord Jesus Christ. This is his sovereign title. The Lord. He is the king. He is the master. He is the ruler. He is the despot. Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the entire universe. He is seated on the throne. He is putting his enemies under his feet. And the very moment a person is saved, truly saved, converted, brought from death into life, given the very righteousness of Christ, they submit and they surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There is no peace with God apart from this. There's no such thing as a salvation that doesn't do this. It is not a real salvation. There's no such thing as a Christian who will not submit to the Lord. It is a false conversion. Saving faith by its very nature recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord. Salvation then is an all or nothing matter. As a young man, I, I, I grew up my whole life, I always believed had wonderful, godly parents. I always 
believed it was true. That accomplished nothing for me when it came to my standing with God. Salvation is an all or nothing matter. I couldn't just hold out because I loved my sin. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In other words, if you don't follow Jesus in obedience, you are not one of his sheep. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3, says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's what that means. Your life will testify about you and it will tell the truth. The question is, are you walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Again, we don't believe in sinless perfectionism in this life. Praise God that we are only judged by the righteousness of Christ given to us. We will never achieve perfection in this life. But our lives will tell the truth about us. What's your life marked by? Is it marked by obedience? Is it marked by hidden sin? That you don't truly repent of? You know there's things you could do to change your behaviors. You know that you could be taking those thoughts captive and you don't do it. No, this magnificent doctrine of justification is not license to sin. It is a deterrent from sin. God God gives to his people not just a rescue from hell. He makes us a brand new person, new heart, new mind, new desires, freedom to follow him. We're not bound to sin anymore. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've come to him by faith, you have been It's already yours, justified, forever. Declared not guilty. Declared in right standing with God by the supreme court of heaven through the saving work of Christ alone. You have, it is already yours, peace with God. This justification has an end goal. It has a sure result. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a passage we know well. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. Oh, don't we need that message right now? We look at the world around us and we go, what's going to happen? What is going to, are we going to have an America in 10 years? Where, where, what's going to happen? We don't know. We need that truth. All things for our good. All right, bring it on. It's for my good. Friends, it'll change your life if you really believe that. But that truth is grounded in something. The very next word is for. It means here's the reason that that's true. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the purpose of all of it. Christian, your final and complete salvation is secure. It is sure. If you have been justified, you will be glorified. It is the sure result. What is glorification? It means you made it. Glorification happens when we die or when the Lord returns. Those who are justified will certainly also be glorified. All of them. There are no dropouts. You hear that language? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's not an asterisk there, and then you go down to the end of Paul's scroll. Now, there are some. No, no, no. No dropouts. No one slips through the cracks. What does that mean for us then here and now? If this is the sure result of our justification, what does it mean right now? Here's what it means. This objective, comprehensive, unshakable peace with God should cause us to have peace in this life, no matter what the world has for us, no matter what it brings our way. As we just read, this peace with God because of our justification, this ultimate sure glorification that awaits us guarantees for us this promise that for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, God is working all things together for our good. What more could we have? Parents with little kids and your little kids doubt your plan, but you don't want to reveal the whole plan to them. You've got something special and sure, but they're just not sure. And you want to tell the kid, trust your dad. This is going to be great. This is for your good. And they just can't see it because they're seven years old and seven-year-olds are (laughs) seven-year-olds. Friends, what if we really believed that every single thing that happened in the entire universe was for our good? Where's the point in getting depressed about anything? It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with any of those feelings, of course. But there's absolutely nothing that can happen, no matter how terrible it is, that good won't result from it. I I spoke with someone last night who was recounting a story. They did one of these... uh, 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 genealogy deals where you give your... DNA and they tell you all these relatives you didn't know. That's how my dad found his birth father recently, which is insane. We didn't think that was possible. But through discovering all this, it has come out that her grandmother was raped and that's where her mom came from. What a horrible thing. It's as horrible a thing as a human can do to another human. And I said to her, but look, here you are. Look at your kids. Look at what came from this. Who would have ever thought? Friends, God can take the worst things. We can believe this, that it's true. If you, though, have not received by faith the salvation of Jesus Christ, 
You are still in rebellion. You are still at war with God, and the wrath of God remains on you. It is not true that he's working all things for your good. You have great cause for concern. In the final judgment, you will be condemned, and you will experience the eternal fire of God's wrath, which I assure you is far worse than any evil that has ever happened on the face of this earth. Peace with God only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not one drop of peace outside of him. It doesn't matter your goodness. It doesn't matter your good intentions. Oh, but friend, if you hear my words, there's hope. There's hope for you. You can come into this promise. You can be an inheritor of this promise. This offer of salvation is once again being extended to you. I trust that you've heard one before. I trust that you've heard the gospel before. This offer is being extended to you. Jesus calls you today to come to him. Won't you come? Come as you are, sinner. Come as you are, rebel. He will have you. He'll set you free. He'll justify you forever. He will, he will give you peace with God. He will give you life. Abundant, eternal life he will give to you. You will come into this promise where you can look at everything that happens in the world and know that the almighty God is at work accomplishing his good purposes for you. Won't you come? Let me just close with the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number one. Question number one is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Christian, that this would be our meditation and our ready response. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not one hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Oh, that that would be our heart's response to this gospel, to this good news. Amen? Let's stand up together. Almighty God, what could we say in light of your kindness? Lord, you who have showered mercy upon us, undeserving sinners, we who are at war with you, who were your enemies, whom you have given peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. We rejoice in you. More than that, Lord, we rejoice that you, the Almighty God, are able to deliver on every single one of your promises. So we have such great reason for hope. I pray that you would fill us with hope. Lord, we, we know that the days around us are evil. We know there is much wickedness. There is much cause from an earthly perspective to fear, to anxiety, to despair. Lord, many of my 
Loved ones here who I love so dearly have gone through such suffering and loss and pain in their lives. Lord, I pray that your gospel would be of great comfort. I pray that you would cause us in the same way that you have given this gift of saving faith that has caused us to trust in you, that you have given us the gift of justification, of right standing with you, the gift of the righteousness of Christ, that you would give to us, Lord, even greater measure of faith, that we would trust in you, that we would rest in you, that we would find our hope and our joy in you. Lord, yes, in this world where we will have troubles, that we would take heart because you have overcome the world. Lord, I pray for my friends that don't know you that are here in this place, particularly those that do. Lord, those who were described, who have thought they had right standing with God, but in fact have never bowed their knee before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you, in your mercy, would call them to yourself. Lord, you have brought them here You've caused them to hear the gospel, and I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit they would respond and you would give them life, that they too would be recipients of the great promises of your salvation. Pray, Lord, that you would cause us to live with boldness, Lord, to live with joy, to live with hope, and to be ambassadors of this hope that the gospel brings, of this offer of salvation and right standing and peace with God. Cause us to be bold witnesses, knowing, Lord, that no matter what the world can bring our way, that if our God is for us, who could be against us? So, Lord, we rejoice in you, our God. We again submit ourselves before you and say, Lord, use us for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.